pressure and consumer demand is why it expands in, in a lot of ways. As, as Tarleton Gillespie famously said, you know, content moderation is the product that these social media platforms offer. You and I go onto Twitter or to Facebook because of the content that they do and don't serve you. And so their rules and their architecture on their platforms is basically the product that you're getting. So there's the, those commercial pressures and um, also, you know, government jawboning or sort of what Jack Balkan calls collateral censorship, where governments informally pressure platforms to take down content. And so uh, that's also increasing. Episode 308 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here do not reflect uh, those of our institutions, our clients, our family, uh, uh, the dogs that are all, and cats that are all listening to us as we speak. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing Evelyn Dweck, uh, who is on with us and probably will join us for the news roundup as well. Evelyn is uh, uh, at the Berkeley. Klein Center for Internet and Society and uh, uh, an SJD, which I guess is a post-JD degree uh, candidate at Harvard. Is that right, Evelyn? Yeah, doctoral student. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. No, great to have you. Uh, uh, Evelyn, as you can tell, is uh, an Aussie. And uh, joining us for the news uh, roundup, uh, the two co-founders of Culper Partners, David Chris, uh, former assistant AG in charge of national security at the Justice Department, and his co-founder, Nate Jones, uh, formerly with the National Security Council. Um, David, uh, welcome. Thank you. It's very good to be here. And Nate? Always a pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for having this us. Is, this is great. And uh, finally, uh, uh, Paul Rosenzweig calling in from Costa Rica, uh, founder of Red Branch Consulting and a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, things pretty good in Costa Rica? Actually, pretty reasonable. We've only got about 325 cases uh, here so far and, and thus far only two deaths. The government's taken some pretty stringent measures. The borders are closed. So uh, I literally could not get back to the States if I wanted to right now, but I'm pretty content with not wanting to. Yeah, it's, it's no different here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur today. Uh, let's jump in. We, we're not going to be able to escape. Escape uh, uh, COVID nineteen uh, uh, on this uh, uh, episode, uh, but I think the the cyber law hook is mainly the increasing use around the world of uh, phone tech and location services to try to damp down the impact of the virus. Uh, uh, David, uh, it's a lot happening around the world. What, what Can you kind of sum it up for us? Yeah. Well, what you see from the news stories and, and other information that's available is that many governments worldwide are using tracking technology to collect information on people's location uh, using cell phones or other or GPS or cell site location information. And they seem to be doing it, at least for now, basically for two reasons. We talked about this last week. First, possibly to enforce quarantines, uh, to keep people in confined spaces, geofencing them where they're supposed to be, and more prominently, more significantly, for purposes of reverse engineering disease vectors, uh, to tell you, oh, you came into contact with someone who has since been tested and found to have the virus, so you may want to be more attentive to your own health as a result of being in their proximity. And a lot of this is being done with apps. Um, Singapore has an app that they developed that uh, Nick Weaver was skeptical about, but apparently the technology was uh, able to be developed such that eff effectively if two phones come into Bluetooth range, they say hi to one another and uh, it gets uploaded via the app. Uh, and there are other methods as well. Um, and there may be some collection going on. There seems to be some collection going on, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, from potentially online advertising companies uh, about anonymized and sort of aggregate information about location uh, in the United States. So there's a lot of collection going on. It's it, people taking action where they can. There's a lot of legal theories uh, under US law, probably under foreign law as well. The Israelis have had some legal action, but the bulk of it may end up being under a consent theory as people download the app 
if the, if an app gets developed in the United States and, and effectively volunteer to participate in the location tracking program if they see a net benefit to themselves for doing so. Yeah, Paul, it, it, it does seem to me that uh, consent that's already present for the advertising, which would give you pseudonymized uh, uh, information about travel patterns uh, and which apparently even the CDC is now buying to see how well people are actually staying in their houses. Uh, it's very crude as a measure and uh, um, isn't likely to get better. And then the other possibility is uh, uh, this um, uh, Trace Together app uh, that uh, uh, the Singapore government is open sourcing where you download it and uh, it really requires that you enter your phone number and obviously you can work through a consent uh, uh, screen when you do that. Uh, um, it, does that solve the privacy problems that people are worrying about? Well, I mean, consent has always, at least in, in, in the states, in the U.S., and, and more or less in, in Europe and, and and other Western nations been been the solution. Obviously, for example, in Europe, it's less likely that that type of of uh, consent would be deemed affirmative consent, uh, since they have a much more stringent uh, approach to that. I think that uh, layered on top of that, one aspect that David didn't mention is that there's going to be a, a a social condemnation for failing to participate in this. That's going to drive a lot of uh, a lot of use. Uh, such that I, I suspect the uptake on things like this is going to be pretty hard as people do a lot of social shaming. The interesting legal questions will revolve, I think, first around whether or not the consent is sufficient. And I, and I share David's view that it probably will be, at least in the U.S. And then secondarily, uh, whether or not there's residual authority to do this uh, absent consent at the at the personal level, right? This is like the guy in Kentucky who wouldn't accept the quarantine and and the and the Kentucky governor literally sent the police to sit outside of his door and, and make him not leave his house. Is there authority in that nature under ECPA, yeah, emergency authorities, under residual Fourth Amendment authorities? Is this a foreign intelligence thing like Keith? Is it gonna fit into that kind of bucket? All of which I don't know the answer to. It's going to be really interesting. Legally. I, I, think, I, I think the legal questions are a lot easier than uh, than that because the quarantine laws, the public health laws, the responses to big contagions were all basically written one in the 20s at the height of the progressive mania for uh, uh, expertise and deferring to experts and to upper, upper middle class people uh, uh, running the show. That was the era that gave us uh, three generations of imbeciles enough from the Supreme Court saying, yeah, sure, you can, uh, if you want to uh, decide to sterilize these people because you don't think they measure up, what the hell? And so that kind of sweeping government authority is in the quarantine laws. Uh, you've got the authority to uh, lock people up, to test them, uh, uh, to seize property uh, for purposes of disposing of dead bodies. There's a lot in those statutes. Uh, and so statutory authority, there's plenty of. And my guess is uh, it would be a brave judge to say, yeah, but I've decided that the Constitution doesn't let you do stuff. Uh, this, this, this feels like uh, a time to invoke the old saw that the Constitution's not a suicide pact. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this, David, I think some of the, the questions uh, that you just described at the retail level, where you're looking at individuals who may be committing criminal offenses in connection with the virus, are probably going to be manageable if all they're looking for is location information, even after Carpenter, you know, if you're doing a grand jury investigation of somebody, um, you can apply for a search warrant if there's probable cause that that they violated a, a, a criminal quarantine prohibition if there is one. I think the non-consent theories for bulk collection are a little more complex, uh, that, but that's not what you're really getting at, I, get, I take it. And I, I you know, the, the problem with non-consensual collection here, and this is the problem with the Israeli system, which is trying to use their counterterrorism methods, which presumably were a very fine-tuned and sophisticated way of seeing who's getting together with whom uh, and trying to, uh, to make sure that uh, uh, you had identified uh, possible terrorist activity early. I, I think 
trying to make that work here is really hard because, you know, if if you see people that you think are uh, potential terrorists within a block of each other, that's good enough to start investigating uh, them, especially when there's three or four of them. It's not good enough to, to to call them up and say you may have been exposed to the other guy because he's got uh, uh, the virus. So I I don't think I don't think it works, and I agree with you. It, it might be hard, although uh, there are plenty of exceptions from the warrant requirement that apply in the context of health inspections, and uh, we could just discover that yeah, ordinarily you need a warrant, but you don't for this. Uh, um, and if what you're trying to do is enforce a quarantine, well, you, you you're going to be quarantining individuals. You're going to be telling them you must go. To, to your home. And by the way, here's something that you must install in order for us to enforce the uh, the quarantine. I, I, I think that is it's close enough to consent for government work. Well, you could certainly rely on a special needs theory under the Fourth Amendment uh, for, for this kind of collection, whether at the individual or at the broader levels. I think there's some other questions around the statutory prohibitions. A lot of the statutes in this space have general prohibitions on collections subject to particularized exceptions. And then you're under the question whether the exceptions can be invoked. Paul mentioned the ECPA emergency exception, which I think was really conceived of as, you know, this particular hitman is going to kill this particular victim, so we better warn the victim to use it you know, for a broad program of collection on an emergency theory it would be more controversial. And, and that really is only to authorize voluntary production by the providers, RCS or ECS providers. It's, I don't think it's terribly likely they would voluntarily rely on that provision to give up data in bulk. Um, and then there would be ultimately, I suppose, a question whether the prohibitions, if they apply, you know, are constitutional in limiting the executive branch. It seems to me that a lot of conservative presidentialists are emphasizing the relevance of state and legislative powers here rather than presidential powers. Um, I've seen some material from very ardent presidentialists to that effect. And so maybe the Article II powers are not quite as strong here as they would be in a terrorism situation i don't know but anyway those are the kinds there's of there's no doubt about it, that I, yeah. I but but that's a, that's that's because these are little frozen in amber uh, legal regimes from the 20s uh, and so you get the federalism of the 20s okay yeah but I'm not, even i'm not sure they would sustain in today's world that's 100 years ago Stuart. so much <laughs> has changed that that you know that 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 was the era of the non-delegation doctrine as well i i really think that the that the that the Great point here is going to be between individuated cases right. because the guy who's got it, who is let out on condition of putting in an app, that's almost like a probation case, right? And that's pretty easy. Uh, it's going to be the systemic, uh, large-scale tracking that that is going to certainly annoy the heck out of the privacy advocates and and quite possibly break on the shores of legality. Right, right. If you have a non-consent theory for bulk collection and you say it's okay under special needs doctrine, so the Fourth Amendment isn't a problem. But then you run up against these statutory prohibitions. The point I was making is I don't know whether the Article II folks, um, you know, not to not to say there's anything wrong with a strong view of Article II, would apply that to say those statutes in purporting to limit the collection ability of the executive branch are unconstitutional. That is less clear to me that those arguments would be made and or sustained by the courts. Um, there'd be a lot of pressure on the courts to rule in favor of collection, obviously, if there was a plausible collection regime and a strong case was made that it's necessary to keep people alive. So hard to predict. One more kind of big tech in the age of coronavirus uh, story. Uh, um, there's, there's, there's this uh, uh, from I, I think the New York Times had a, a, a story saying, "Gee, we 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 hated big tech, uh, um, and uh, now maybe we love it." And uh, uh, in any event, uh, when you look at the uh, the disaster that is the U.S. economy, Silicon Valley mostly seems to be coming out of this okay. Uh, Nate, uh, you think that's true? The pendulum is swinging wildly back and forth on big tech in this country. Uh, I, I think it's true to a degree. Look, a lot of these companies are 
stepping up and I think their recognition of their social responsibility to do the the responsible thing is is in most cases genuine. You know, you see even just today there's news Facebook is giving a hundred million dollars to local news organizations who they acknowledge are an important source of information about COVID and how people should be behaving and what the risks are. And so they're doing a lot of things that I think will ultimately help their reputation over the long run. Uh, the real question, I think, is is how much and will that be enough? And there, there are two things on the back end of all of this that they have to continue to, to think about and prepare for. The first is a lot of the issues they've been getting pressure on aren't necessarily going to be alleviated by what they're doing. Um, they're in many cases distinct, and in some cases, um, questions about antitrust violations and consolidation, they may be exacerbated by the current situation. Um, and that's particularly true in the case of an Amazon, which uh, people, at least those of us who are living in these um, quarantined areas, so to speak, are increasingly dependent on for, for goods and services. Um but the other thing that I think they have to uh, be mindful of is, is the longer this goes on and the more dramatic its effects on our lives, the, the more we may emerge from this looking very different as a society. Um, and there are very basic and easy to understand ways in which that may take place. One of them is you know, the, the stimulus package that just passed. Um, a lot of people think that we're going to need more stimulus to emerge from this and get the economy restarted. Um, if people turn back to addressing these budget deficits at some point, there aren't going to be many people around who actually have cash to make up for that. So when you're looking for a tax base to help you pay for things, there aren't going to be many candidates out there for people to look for. And so I think, you know, as as this continues, if it lasts for a prolonged period of time and we emerge from this um, looking for solutions, um, some of those solutions may end up being uh, done on the backs of big tech because they're an obvious uh, source of, of finances, resources, and technology and know-how to get things done. And so when you're looking at regulatory state, regulatory changes, um, you know, things like encryption are, are not likely to go away. Uh, and as new new problems emerge from this, they may be uh, in people's sites as a potential solution for them. Yeah, my guess is uh, this, this is much more selective in its uh, impact. This is going to be a lot better for Seattle than for Silicon Valley uh, because the Seattle tech firms don't depend on advertising, which is in the tank. Uh, uh, and uh, therefore, um, Facebook and Google are not as rich as uh, you think. We're all using their services more, but not necessarily uh, giving them the benefit of the advertising dollars that uh, make that possible. Evelyn, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, I agree with all of that. There's definitely been a big shift in the conversation around these platforms in the last couple of weeks. I mean, the Australian government, which just a year ago was threatening to jail Mark Zuckerberg over the uh, Christchurch massacre live stream, uh, is now holding press conferences telling Australians, go out and download WhatsApp so that we can uh, provide you with with information. So, you know, it's, um, it's a huge shift in sort of sentiment. But I think just as the tech lash narrative itself was always a bit oversimplified, uh, this redemption story is also uh, oversimplified. I think that a lot of the issues um, that are just lying latent as the, at the moment while we focus on other things are going to come back with a vengeance, uh, especially if we find ourselves um, increasingly reliant on these platforms, as you know, Nate mentioned, the antitrust issues, but things around the 2020 election as well. Um, when all of that starts ramping up again, uh, the the old issues about fake news, disinformation, misinformation, polarization, they're all going to come back with a vengeance as well. Yep. And as those of us who have raised teenagers know, dependence does not necessarily produce gratitude in the long run. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, and um, China and Russia are uh, behaving true to type uh, with the uh, coronavirus as well. Uh, uh, Paul, it looks as though that China is actually finally borrowing some of 
Russia's uh, sort of disinformation style, which is nihilism or who the hell knows what the truth is, which probably tells you that they've got something to hide, huh? Well, it certainly makes it more likely than not that uh, that we should be suspicious of, of, of the data coming out of uh, China. On the other hand, I don't think that you know, disinformation campaigns from China is the leading indicator of that. I would have been suspicious of CCCP numbers, uh, even if in the absence of the disinformation campaign. Um, so uh, what it does really emphasize, uh, again, is uh, is the lesson we've taken from the Russian disinformation campaign with respect to the elections, which is that the United States government specifically and the West more generally has yet to develop a a uh, suitable response uh, mechanism to this sort of information campaign. It isn't. It isn't just plain propaganda. It isn't war. Yeah, it's uh, information operations. It's prohibited interference under international law, and we have not managed to figure out how to untie that Gordian knot of reasonable responses that are within the bounds of what we are capable of, what the rule of law allows, and what we're willing to do. Uh, that uh, would, yeah, I mean, we could obviously end all of this by by getting off the platforms altogether and ending Twitter and Facebook in their entirety. But as as we just heard, it, quite to the contrary, we're going in the opposite direction now. So uh, so it's a so, conundrum. Yeah, the, the the couple of senators wrote to Twitter uh, uh, and and said something halfway down that road. They said, "What the hell is the Chinese Communist Party doing on Twitter?" Uh, and and that's a fair question, given that uh, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't allow Twitter to circulate inside uh, uh, China. Uh, uh, Nate, I, I kind of wonder why Twitter would even, you know, they should have a hair trigger for kicking Chinese government entities off because they're not getting any benefit from uh, being able to uh, circulate in China. And the Chinese are basically saying, yeah, you, you, you can't reach our people, but we're determined to reach all of yours. I'm not sure that that kind of asymmetric uh, uh, division of uh, uh, reach is, you know, the, the the settled order of things. They're not getting any benefit yet, uh, Stuart. And and that is the, the story of the U.S. tech industry in China, I think. I think they all have grand designs on, on breaking into that market at some point hoping that the country liberalizes and um, and the money starts flowing. And so that may be influencing it. I think the other uh, thing, quite frankly, is it's um, the the tech industry and Twitter uh, is, is part of this. They tend to be reluctant to take actions themselves that crack down on free speech, even free speech that they find detestable. And you and I can differ <laughs> differ about whether they're applying that principle in the context of um, uh, conservative viewpoints online. But um, but I think, you know, they would probably acknowledge at least privately that they're not um, happy about the way they've been treated in um, China. But I think, you know, they would also say it's it's not our place to then do that back to them. Um, we're going to still behaving in a principled way. Is it the place of the U.S. Congress? Would it be lawful for the U.S. to say as a trade measure, uh, if you represent a government that has uh, foreclosed a platform, uh, you're, you're banned from the platform? I, th I think it would be constitutional, particularly if um, the impacted party is not a U.S. person, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, you could argue that they could do that, and I think you'd be on pretty solid ground. Um, to, the, to the original question, I think I agree with Paul. I think that they are there are a lot of things to be um, wary of coming out of China at this point. They are um, and have long been seeking a leadership role on the world stage and trying to supplant the United States. This origins question seems to me like something that they are at the end of the day treating as not a big threat, but they don't like a problem they don't want to fester. And they're addressing that with, as you said, the Russian tactic of disinformation um, where they have more skin in the game. I think you still see them acting proactively to try to define narratives to to affirmatively um, spread disinformation and define a narrative in a way that benefits them geopolitically. Um, 
and and I think this is this is still not the the primary um, focus of the Chinese government. It seems at this point, um, but there are other aspects of the coronavirus response where they're trying to define what they did as a, an unqualified success and and gain greater acclaim for that. And there, I think you, you have to be wary of the numbers and the information they're putting out because it, it looks a little bit more like it may be active disinformation. Yeah, I, 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 they are gonna, they're going to have to start uh, stop sending urns to put people's ashes in, uh, uh, in numbers that are way beyond their, their reported death rates. Uh, maybe they should just send people shovels and bags, uh, which I would not put, um, put past them. Uh, um, so, um, Evelyn, uh, uh, let's just switch over to ways in which uh, Silicon Valley is recouping around the world. Uh, uh, I was struck by this kind of remarkable uh, announcement that uh, I, where it was completely uncertain whether ISPs were agreeing to do something voluntarily. The Australian government was requiring them to this was taking down uh, violent videos, essentially, uh, you know, uh, uh, mass shooting videos. Uh, uh, there was this weird interrelationship between what the ISPs were saying they were doing, what the law said. I could not make head or tail of that. So can you clarify what is actually happening in us? So look, first, as an Australian, please let me take this opportunity to apologize for my country's repeated attempts to break the internet. Uh, and second, I just want to say uh, that bring the bad news that this, this situation, this story is actually an improvement on the previous situation. So uh, in the wake of the Christchurch massacre, a number of ISPs voluntarily, and I mean, listeners can't see my air quotes, but they're there, um, blocked a number of websites that were hosting footage of the Christchurch uh, live stream. Um, and this was subsequently formalized. Uh, some legislation was passed and Australia's Orwellian named e-safety commissioner uh, gave an order formalizing what the ISPs had done um, voluntarily. Uh, and so now we have a protocol, that's what um, was announced this week, about what's going to happen in those crisis moments, uh, a protocol for what should be blocked and, and how it should be done. Um, but, you know, when I say it's an improvement, it's very, very marginal. The protocol itself isn't public, so it's really unclear um, what it what it is and what, what's going to happen. So, um, you know, this continues a trend of a completely opaque and inconsistent exercise of powers of censorship by the Australian government in reaction to the Christchurch massacre. So, uh, but New Zealand's no better, is it? No, I mean, it's it's not, a, the Antipodeans are not uh, behaving at their best at the moment uh, on this front. All right. Uh, and um, David, Paul, uh, there's a 5G strategy that came out, uh, it, uh, it was almost immediately after a law was passed saying you have to have a 5G strategy. Uh, yeah. uh, and then sometimes in the next 18 months, we're going to see uh, an implementation plan. And I was struck. I went back and read the law. And that's all the law calls for. It just says, yeah, you need to have a plan and you need to have an implementation uh, uh, proposal. And, uh, you know, we're not giving you any new, uh, new authorities. We just want you to generate paper. Yeah. Or is that unfair? I mean, I, no, I, I don't know what Paul's view is, but my own assessment is um, in keeping with what you just said, this is pretty thin gruel. Uh, it's, I think, less than seven pages altogether with some pretty big font and some nifty graphics that take up additional space. Uh, it describes fundamentally four lines of effort, none of which strike me as particularly uh, creative, um, you know, but basic. It's a domestic rollout of 5G, sort of a threat security assessment, taking steps to maintain security, and then trying to influence worldwide standards. Um, all of these have been in operation prior to this uh, strategy being described, and they're all described at a fairly high level of generality. Maybe the most interesting thing about this um, in light of recent discussions is that there doesn't seem to be any uptake in this document anyway of uh, Bill Barr's idea that the U.S. government or a coalition of U.S. providers buy Ericsson or Nokia or a stake in those uh, providers to compete directly 
with Huawei as a supplier of 5G hardware. Um, that I didn't see in this document. Um, with there the was, even some, there was even some language in the statute that said this plan should not include nationalizing this <laughs> So, So Bill's speech didn't catch, I guess, is my main takeaway, at least for now. Well, he's probably getting used to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I agree with Go David. Ahead. This is the type of strategy that gives strategies a bad name and makes everybody kind of sneer when when you do it. Um, uh, it really kind of is pablum that avoids all the hard questions. If they'd been serious about it, there'd be um, an effort, for example, to develop uh, secure uh, communications that are not dependent upon what are likely to be permanently compromised networks, right? There was absolutely nothing in here about efforts to uh, counter Chinese influence in the third world. I mean, as you said at the outset, I live in Costa Rica. The only thing you can buy here is Huawei handsets, and they're doing all of our 5G rollout because they're here and nobody else is. Nokia's not, Ericsson's not, and, and that would be part of a serious strategy about 5G. Uh, is, so this is kind of, I won't say dreck, but if you if you're short on toilet paper, print this out. Hey, you know, look, we we <laughs> we were both at DHS in the strategy and policy office, and uh, um, we've shipped our share of dreck. Uh, yes, when, uh, yes. When you're but, when you're mandated to produce a, a strategy, but you know that no one cares, you're like a uh, a ninth grader with a two thousand uh, word essay to produce. Uh, you just uh, you you say what you have to to get to two thousand words. Well, I, I guess that's fair and true. Uh, I mean, I, I'm looking at this, and as, as David says, literally, of the seven pages, two and a half are blank white. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, these guys um, had time to write this bill and pass it. They had time to write a $2 trillion uh, a bailout bill, and they couldn't manage while they were in town to vote to extend uh, FISA? What the hell? David, uh, was it as irresponsible as that? Uh, well, I, I'll refrain from a significant comment on this, uh, you know, given my potentially ongoing role. But um, Yes, okay. Well, Paul, you want to you beat up on Congress? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first off, I, I just want to say that, you know, having a good amicus is a good thing. Uh, you know, and, and good outside advice is great stuff. Uh, not that that has anything to do with David or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, no, it, I mean, it's quite remarkable that for all the strum and drong about this, Congress left without it. Uh, I mean, the Senate couldn't find the time to pass this by UC. I guess it's because they couldn't get it. Um, so we're going to actually have a really interesting real world experiment here because because uh, we're going to be without FISA at least through uh, the end of April, if not longer, because Congress ain't coming back to do this anytime soon. So we're going to see in real time what the effects are. And, and that'll be a, a useful data point, right, of, of the exact sort that uh, ought to inform public policy debates. My prediction is there'll be some pretty significant gaps developed. But if I'm proven wrong, then that'll be a, a data point itself. Yeah, the way in which FISA starts to break down is mitigated by provisions that say you can keep using this if you started the investigation before the termination, uh, and they have you know ongoing investigations of ISIS that uh, that will never end, uh, and so they can probably use some of this stuff. But yeah, it's gonna it's gonna bite in unexpected ways, uh, and it was just a completely irresponsible act on the part of Congress, uh, which suggests uh, really, frankly, ever enacting a sunset for something like this is completely irresponsible because stuff like this happens. I'll just, Stuart, I don't want to comment on it substantively, all joking aside, but I will just say, you know, it is, it's three provisions of FISA. It's not the bulk of the of the FISA provisions, it's the it's the lone wolf provision that allows you to target for collection an individual non-U.S. person terrorist, even if there's no link to a group. It's the roving surveillance, which parallels a, a, a similar provision under the Wiretap Act for following somebody who throws a cell phone or uses a burner phone and moves around. And, and then it's the uh, 
update and expansion of the tangible things provision, it's now lapsed back to its pre-Patriot Act form, which applies only to four specific kinds of records. So it's not a general uh, sunset of FISA, just of those three uh, elements of it. You're right, David, but the lone wolf provision is irrelevant. But the other two strike me, and again, I don't want to get into substance because of your role, but the other two strike me as potentially real uh, limitations. All right. Well, let's let's do let's bang through the last the, the, a, a few more stories. There's a story in the New York Times, it, it, just a part of the AI bogus bias uh, uh, campaign that uh, the media is running, in which they discovered, to their astonishment, that voice recognition uh, uh, systems uh, actually understand standard English better than black vernacular and they treat that as though it's uh, it's you know the second coming of uh, uh, segregation uh, when it obviously is a question of how much training you do and whether you're trying to uh, provide a service that recognizes every accent uh, uh, or which recognizes accents that most people can adopt uh, even if it is not the way they speak at home. Um, uh, the idea that this is racial bias, uh, I've got a new term. I think this that, that uh, all of this AI bogus bias stuff is an example of misanthropomorphism. Uh, first, you you anthropomorphize the the system, and then you uh, 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 engage in misanthropy about it, uh, uh, and you just presume it must be biased because a person who refused to understand black vernacular would be demonstrating bias, and therefore this must be biased. So one more time, the New York Times has uh, lived down to my expectations. Uh, Justice Department has brought its first fraud case against uh, coronavirus. Looks like a fraud of a case to me. They don't know who they're prosecuting, and they probably never will, right, David? Yeah, this is a civil case in which they're trying to shut down a website that claims the World Health Organization is giving away free vaccine kits, and you can get one even though it's free for four ninety five plus shipping and handling. Just Order add water. All <laughs> right. So, um, you know, there's there's. A lot of uh, effort at the state and federal level uh, underway looking at what you would expect in terms of like a top 10 of criminal actions that follow from this thing, including, you know, fake treatments, uh, fake uh, items, price gouging in particular uh, around hand sanitizer and toilet paper and so forth, uh, fake charities. Uh, various investment scams that are out there, student loan scams, various kinds of phishing app scams, and of course, with everybody working from home, a proliferation of traditional cyber uh, crime and other activity as the attack surface proliferates because workplaces are now fragmented and protections harder to do at the edge. So, you know, you're going to see a lot of criminals reacting to uh, opportunity created by this. You see federal and state enforcement efforts trying to meet that, and you'll be in the usual kind of arms race uh, as both sides try to evolve. So this is a symbolic – I think this is a symbolic case designed for the publicity value on the theory that the publicity value might deter a few people and make the Justice Department look good. But I frankly don't think that it tells us anything about how well we're going to be able to prevent coronavirus fraud. Yeah. Well, we'll All right. Uh, Amazon – uh, is now upset that the uh, Pentagon is reconsidering parts of its award of the, the big Jedi cloud uh, um, contract to Microsoft. Uh, uh, Paul, this strikes me as completely unsurprising that, Am that first the Pentagon would go back and try to fix the most obvious problems with, with its original award, and that when Amazon realizes, realized that only the problems they had pointed out that were going to help them win the case were being fixed, they decided they didn't like the idea of doing it. I think that's a little uh, <laughs> ungenerous to Amazon. Not that I'm <laughs> going to be a defender of Amazon, but I think what they, what they have said is that too much of of the whole process was infected by an overarching miasma of pressure from the White House that they need to do it all over again. I mean, that's what they argued for initially. And uh, yeah, whether they get it or not, I don't know. Whether there was pressure or not, I don't know. But uh, certainly, you know, if, you, if you'd gone back two years to when the, when the Pentagon first started doing JEDI, everybody and their mother would have thought that Amazon was the odds-on favorite because they 
were already running the IC cloud and doing a pretty good job of it. So I think they want to run the whole thing over again. I don't blame them. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, like we've we've all uh, the, on on the side of the government, we've we've all tried to get contracts through and make awards. And you know that when the size gets to a certain uh, uh, amount, uh, uh, there are going to be challenges. And if you're not careful, y you'll end up in litigation hell. You'll just never make an award. Uh, uh, so my sympathies are with the guys who made the award. Uh, there are never perfect awards. Uh, uh, I like the idea of fixing the most obvious problems because. They're fixable. Uh, this this question of did you know is this the president's doing? I, I predict that will never get resolved in court. <laughs> Should we delay the CCPA in California, uh, which is due to uh, start uh, um, uh, potential litigation enforcement in July? Uh, um, and uh, Becerra has said, nope, uh, you can. You can deal with uh, COVID-19 and the CCPA at the same time. Uh, uh, you think these, that's going to stick? No, it can't, right? I mean, you know, small businesses are, are and medium-sized businesses are, are groaning under huge economic pressure now. Even the largest ones are going to have massive dislocations. This is, you know, it's a small bean, right? I mean, thing, but it might be the straw that breaks a lot of camels' backs. And it's just a distraction in a time of crisis. I cannot imagine that this will stand. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me now turn to Evelyn. Evelyn has done some of the most nuanced work about content moderation that I've run into. Uh, she isn't particularly an apologist for the social media platforms. She doesn't have, as I do, an axe to grind of thinking that she's been oppressed by uh, 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 ideological bias in Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, and so she's written a lot of things that I think I, it's fair to say, Evelyn, and I'm not sure you'll like this, complexify the uh, content moderation problem but all you know after I read your stuff I end up thinking god I really know a lot more about the problem and I'm even further from solutions than I thought I was uh, so how did you get into the content moderation that uh, field what caused you to start looking at this uh, no, I do like that, Stuart. I mean, as an academic, uh, complexifying things is what I get paid to do. So that's that's great. Uh, very happy with that characterization. You know, I wish I had some good story about being kicked off Facebook and that sparking a lifelong passion to fight for the little guy against big tech or something. Um, but I won't contribute to the fake news crisis by uh, making a story like that up. Really, uh, you know, it was actually a bit of an accident. I was casting around for a topic for my doctoral work at the height of the 2016 Macedonian teenager fake news hullabaloo, if we remember that. That was, uh, seems like ancient history now. Um, but at the time, that was all going on, and I've always been interested in free speech issues, so it seemed like a good fit. And, you know, really, if you if you care about free speech today, the, the most important and consequential rules that you should be caring about are those that are uh, made and enforced by the social media platforms who regulate far more speech uh, than any state regulator anywhere in the world. Yeah, and and uh, it has a direct and immediate impact. There are things you cannot say to your bowling club in Des Moines uh, because uh, some Twitter kind of wannabe techie uh, has decided, uh, you know, you're using the wrong pronoun. Right. So the uh, the technical capability and the way that the um, social media companies moderate content does mean that there's definitely you know a lot more uh, prior restraint, as we would call it in the old uh, First Amendment terms, um, through the way content moderation than there ever has been uh, by the state. Absolutely. So okay. So lots of people don't like that, and even people who think they might like it are worried about how it will evolve uh, in ways that they don't like and and a lot of this is very instrumental they they, they like the uh, um, the content that's being suppressed or they don't uh, and so they're for it or against it on those grounds but even the people who sort of um, like the the general lefty bias in uh, uh, Silicon Valley are afraid that at the end of the day it's going to be a 
pro-business bias, an oligarch's bias, uh, maybe even something that is very uh, corrupt uh, from the point of view of the interests of Silicon Valley. Uh, so I, I think on left and right, there's real worry about uh, what's happening here. So how come it continues to expand? Content moderation, you mean? What, what yes. social media platforms mm-hmm. are doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think actually a lot of people do really like it. I think um, the internet would probably be pretty unusable without private content moderation. Uh, And in many ways, it's still probably the lesser of two evils in terms of whether private companies do it or the government does it. Um, And that definitely doesn't mean that it's perfect or it can't be improved. As you say, there's a lot of uh, transparency deficits in this. We've increasingly become uh, become aware and there's mounting evidence of the fact that there's arbitrariness in the way that these companies write and enforce the rules, and it's uh, so um, so. Th- there are very real concerns about that, but absolutely, you know, public pressure and consumer demand is why it expands in in a lot of ways. As as Tarleton Gillespie Gillespie famously said, you know, content moderation is the product that these social media platforms offer. You and I go onto Twitter or to Facebook um, if we if we still do that um, because of the content that they do and don't serve you, and so. Their, their rules and their architecture on their platforms is basically uh, the, the product that you're getting. So there's the, those commercial pressures and um, also, you know, government jawboning or sort of what Jack Balkan calls collateral censorship, where governments informally pressure platforms to take down content. You know, we already heard an example earlier of the Australian government with the ISPs. And so uh, that's also increasing uh, as well. So, I, you know, you're right. Uh, for sure, no one wants Twitter, if they're going to see uh, uh, two girls, one bowl every third day. But uh, at the same, and, and, and so we do want spaces that are safe for kids sometimes. And sometimes we want spaces that are not safe for kids. Uh, uh, there are a lot of different uh, contexts in which we're tolerating more or less speech. Uh, and yet uh, there aren't enough successful social media platforms uh, to have that kind of diversity. And and so one of the problems people keep saying is, why don't we solve this by breaking these guys up? Uh, More competition means that, uh, you know, the conservatives who are complaining are going to get the the Fox News social uh, media platform uh, and uh, uh, minorities will get uh, black entertainment TV. We can have more diversity if we just have more competition. Uh, you're a little skeptical if I uh, read you right. Yeah, so I am sort of agnostic or just don't know enough about the antitrust arguments in general. I think there's probably a lot of really good arguments for breaking up the tech platforms. Um, But for the issues that I study and the things that I look at, the speech-related problems, the content moderation problems, I just don't think uh, breakups is is the way to go. And I don't think that that's uh, necessarily going to fix the problem. So, I mean, the the first and, and, you know, classic response to it is that these platforms thrive on network effects. So, you know, as much as we somewhat do want to be in little bubbles uh, by ourselves with our liberal or Republican friends or whatever it is, um, we also really enjoy the fact that you're connected to many different people all around the world uh, and that those, you know, connections can be really important, uh, especially for people uh, who, you know, aren't as well connected in in perhaps their physical lives or, 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 um, you know, disadvantaged communities as well really get a lot out of that. So those network effects are important. Um, But also competition, you know, could drive a lot of the sort of pernicious uh, dynamics that we see. You know, if if one of your concerns is that these platforms compete too much for eyeballs and prioritize uh, polarizing content and and, um, eyeball attracting content, Extra competition may only sort of exacerbate those kinds of dynamics and, and make it worse. So I, yeah, I'm I'm con- uh, skeptical that um, the the marketplace is the best way to solve uh, some of our marketplace of idea ideas failures. Well, and you, you one of one of your papers talks a lot about how uh, what people if you had multiple different platforms uh, uh, and you were talking about content moderation, there's an enormous temptation for everybody to get together in a back room and agree on how to do content moderation, to develop tools and hand them out freely to everybody else uh, so that you end up with uh, a lot of competition, but not about content moderation. Yeah, we're seeing this more and more. I've sort of, uh, because I'm an academic and I'm supposed to put names on things, I've called it the rise of content cartels. We're sort of seeing these pressures for uh, 
social media platforms to collaborate across an increasing number of areas. And in a lot of ways, that can be really good and really helpful, um, you know, in terms of things like disinformation campaigns that are cross-platform and don't sort of take a, we're going to attack Facebook today uh, view of what they're doing. You know, they, you know, they operate across 40 different platforms. And while Facebook has an intelligence service that ri rivals something like the, the 10 biggest countries, um, the little guys starting up don't have that kind of uh, infrastructure. And so they can really benefit from the tools that the big platforms offer. But of course, um, the, the, that means that if you're thinking of platforms as uh, having lots of platforms as a way of getting more diversity, um, that these pressures towards sort of homogeneity um, and sort of not adopting extreme or, or different content moderation policies to sort of draft in the wake of the big platforms are, is especially big and it won't actually achieve those diversity aims either. So how did we get here? I, I, I think it, it's worth just quickly talking through, because I think these are stories that give us a feel for the evolution of content moderation, begins with spam and child porn and moves on from there. Uh, uh, can you just give us a capsule history of content moderation? Yeah, yeah uh, sure. How, how long do you have? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right. It sort of starts with the idea that we need to make these uh, platforms uh, user-friendly and sort of, you know, manageable and things like spam, you know, Facebook takes down a ridiculous amount of spam uh, every quarter and fake accounts. It would just be completely unusable if they didn't do that. Um, and then obviously, uh, child sexual abuse material is one of the key areas. It's one of the few areas where there's sort of unanimity on the, the fact that these companies need to work together and to work with governments um, to, to get rid of, of that content and um, to help uh, bring perpetrators to justice. Um, but then it's sort of the infrastructures that were created for dealing with those kinds of content, like um, centralized databases uh, where the companies all work together to detect that kind of content, um, gradually get expanded to other areas. And the, the first one was uh, terrorist content, extremist content, where in the EU in particular, there was a big push for social media platforms to do more um, in respect of that kind of content, um, in particular in, in the wake of um, you know, a number of attacks across Europe. And so they set up something, uh, the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism, which is based explicitly on the same model uh, as the child sexual abuse material, where they have a centralized database of previously defined terrorist content that uh, a number of different platforms and a, a growing number of members check their services against and remove any hits. Um, the problem is, of course, that extremist content, terrorist content is a far more nebulous, uh, difficult to define category than something like child sexual abuse material. And so there's real sort of real free speech concerns um, that you have when you're looking at that. And now we're seeing that kind of same, you all need to work together to, to, to rid the internet of this scourge, um, expanding to, into um, election interference and what the platforms have um, called coordinated inauthentic behavior. Um, I, I, I love that. I, I, I keep imagining that you call as an expert witness an existentialist dance instructor. Yeah. I mean, my favorite anecdote about that is I was asking Alex Stamos where the term came from, and he said that they were going to call it coordinated inauthentic activity, uh, but they realized that that would spell CIA, and so they had to change it. And, you know, now they all hinge on the fact that it's all about policing behavior, and it's just a total accident of, um, of acronyms. So there you go. Um, this term of art uh, comes from – that's where it comes from. So I, I, I actually used to uh, uh, occasionally get – called to uh, uh, give legal advice on uh, uh, child porn. And in fact, or child sexual abuse material, as it's now called, uh, um, it, if you think that it's easy to tell whether something is child porn or not, uh, uh, you're not paying attention. There, uh, the, uh, the child sexual abuse material laws uh, turn on things like where is the camera focused, uh, how uh, is the child standing, um, it, it, you don't have to have, you can have Basically, lascivious poses is sufficient to get you into the child porn category, uh, uh, and that's uh, that means that the ambiguities that we actually ignored with uh, 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 CSAM are growing ever larger as we get into terrorism and then coordinated inauthentic behavior. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, was oversimplifying 100%, you know, this supposedly unanimous, unambiguous category, of course, once you start to look at it, becomes uh, problematic in and of itself. And it's especially uh, difficult to police um, the the boundaries of that category, because there's so many rules around who can look at the content and and things like that as well. Uh, And if you have problems about ambiguity and definition in something that, you know, you should hope is one of the more relatively definable uh, categories, things like extremist um, and uh, terrorist content and, and hate speech um, and coordinated inauthentic behavior, all of that uh, is, is much more ambiguous. So uh, there are real free speech concerns there. How are they finding coordinated inauthentic behavior? I assume what they're really talking about there is people who are using fake accounts a lot in ways that look as though they're driving users toward a particular set of sites and points of view, and which of course is what everybody who wants to be an influencer tries to do. Uh, but there are there are influencers and influencers, and if you're uh, influencing on behalf of the Chinese or the Russian government, they're going to come down on you. Uh, but it's not clear to me that the behavior is all that different. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, this is one of the big issues in this space. Is it's a very nebulous phrase that keep, keeps getting thrown around like it's uh, some sort of scientific term, um, but that's really not at all clear necessarily what it means. Um, and policing the boundaries of it become uh, increasingly difficult. And you know, Mike Bloomberg came in and thought like, let's let's sort of test the lines here and there. And he was a real problem child for these platforms because you know he was doing things like paying a bunch of Instagram influencers uh, themselves to post messages uh, and from their individual accounts, was that uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior? Or there were sort of Twitter campaigns where a bunch of people uh, actually associated with the campaigns, but not necessarily presenting it, were tweeting the same content at the same time. And so this was, you know, like suddenly, again, this this term, this sort of seemingly uh, neutral uh, category um, actually is obviously, as always, um, for, for lawyers, uh, you know, gray and hard to define as well. So I think that that's somewhere where we really do need to have a lot more transparency and a lot more openness and um, oversight over how these things are getting defined, particularly in the realm of political um, speech, because that's, you know, uh, free speech theory tells us that that's where scrutiny should be at its highest. And at the moment, it's at one of its lowest. Um, And one of the reasons for that, you know, there is a real tension that you have to walk where if you talk too openly about what the standards are and what the, 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 the triggers are for triggering enforcement action, then that makes it easier for bad actors, as they're called in this space, to game the platforms. Um, but at the same time, you know, large parts of the internet are coordinated inauthentic behavior. That's kind of what we do. Um, and so I think <laughs> that there is like a, a real need to be a, lo- a lot more open and transparent um, about how these platforms are enforcing these rules. So that's the thing I want to go to last, uh, is the other um, solution that everybody is attracted to uh, is what you were just talking about, transparency. Is there a way to give people transparency into why they were taken down for us to be able to police them by saying, oh, I see, yes, they didn't take down Bloomberg, but they did take it down Alex Jones because there was a genuine difference between what the two of them were doing or there wasn't and it was just that they hate Alex Jones uh, and, you know, with some reason, but still. It's not as simple as having more transparency or more due process. Uh, But I'd like you to kind of talk about how far we could go, whether the platforms uh, are willing to go as far as they need to, uh, to start turning transparency into a discipline. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the most promising avenue for reforms in this space, um, and and sort of platforms have been acknowledging that, and I and I hope that that's sort of we c- continue the trend of more transparency. I mean, that issue of consistency of enforcement, I think, is just going to be the question that comes, and it's already coming. Uh, you know, as these platforms step up their enforcement actions around uh, the pandemic and and COVID nineteen material, they're going to get increasingly asked. Well, if you can do it so effectively in this context, why aren't you doing it in all of these other contexts as well? And I think that that question is coming and they're going to need an answer um, for that, you know, superficially inconsistent treatment. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, we need more verification of the numbers that they put out. And we also just need more public discussion. And that's why I'm sort of cautiously optimistic about one of the more promising uh, 
initiatives we've seen in this space, which is Facebook's oversight board, um, as one model for sort of getting that public reasoning and public contestation around why are they drawing the lines that they're drawing um, so that we can have a more structured and channeled public discussion uh, rather than when any any of these things happen, um, you know, it's there's a thousand think pieces launched in the in the pages of all of our major news outlets and, and, and blogs, um, which I think is productive and really useful and helpful for keeping up the scrutiny. But I think it would also be good to have some sort of like centralized forum for those arguments to take place. So I, there, you can see some value in that, especially if the oversight board can actually dig in and, and essentially subpoena the records uh, uh, and uh, the discussion around the decision to see, you know, what motivated it uh, and to be candid about that, which I, I think is uh, yet to be determined. But at the end of the day, they don't have the bandwidth to do anything other than occasionally uh, send a bolt of lightning down onto the mass of content moderators uh, huddled uh, beneath them doing their jobs. Yeah, I mean, this is a classic issue for most justice systems, right? It's like you um, you have you know thousands of frontline decisions, and you have sort of appellate structures that um, you know can only hear a very limited number of of those uh, those appeals. Um, but you know, I still think it does have real value. A lot of our conversations in this space uh, do happen around a very surprisingly few examples that get rolled out on every panel presentation or podcast. Um, you know, we've heard some of the hits today, the Alex Joneses, you hear the deep fake hits, the Nancy Pelosi video and things like that. They, they, a lot of our policy conversations in this space do sort of center on a very few sort of examples that become uh, indicative of the broader problem. And I think it's useful to have more sustained and structured conversation and transparent conversation about how the platforms respond in those individual instances. Um, and that hopefully, I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. Whether this kind of structure works depends a lot on the procedures that it's whether it's able to have access to the information that it needs, and also how seriously the platforms take their responsibility to then enact the policy that comes out of something like this. Um, but all of that's to be determined. I, I remain optimistic, but that may just be my uh, youthful exuberance. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> So I, I, I'll, I'll bring this to a close first with an anecdote. I have occasionally said that if you want to understand my politics, you need to know up. I grew up anti-authoritarian in a uh, family where the New York Times editorial board was the ultimate authority figure. And I, so I've watched the New York Times uh, for 50 years uh, um, and with, with considerable skepticism about their bias. Uh, uh, and this reminds me, this whole Facebook oversight board, which as you say is the best thing we've got going, reminds me of the ombudsman uh, and the codes of journalistic ethics that came out of the New York Times vision of journalism, which is, of course, we're present we're presenting the facts uh, and the news, and we shouldn't be overtly biased. We Maybe we, reporters shouldn't vote in elections. Uh, I won't say it was a scam, but the fact is their bias came through nonetheless. And having an ombudsman who would every once in a while bite the hand that fed them and say, my newspaper uh, engaged in improper conduct in running this story the way it did uh, made almost no difference except to make people feel as though we can't possibly be biased. We have an ombudsman. Uh, and so I think that's kind of, unfortunately, it sounds like our best case for dealing with the risk of rampant bias in Silicon Valley content moderation. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a risk that this could all end up being sort of some sort of transparency or due process theater. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that people like us, you and I, Stuart, can hold them to account and, and try and make sure that it's not. Um, we'll see. But I think it, it really does point to the to the real big issue here that, you know, I have some sympathy with the platforms when they say they don't want to be arbiters of truth because it's just such a, a messy game and, and we don't really want them getting into that as well. Uh, but at the same time, how th they are making decisions about what you and I can see online and we need to think more deeply about how we can uh, hold that to account and reestablish some sort of trust in the relationship that we have um, with these really like uh, ultra important channels of information, especially now when it's basically all we all do all day uh, is sit on sit on these platforms. So uh, yeah, it's it's a struggle. <laughs> 
Uh, Evelyn Dweck, uh, a great conversation, and uh, uh, you've chosen a field that will uh, uh, last you for the rest of your career, if that's what you choose to do. You, you, this, this problem is not going away. We are all going to end up having to make our accommodation with Jack Dorsey and his liberty gibbet uh, view of uh, political issues. Uh, um, so thank you so much, and we will have you back in a year to see what's changed. I look forward to it. Thanks, Stuart. All right. Uh, uh, thanks also to David Chris and Nate Jones and Paul Rosenzweig for joining me. This is episode 308 of Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Rate the show on wherever you uh, uh, have a chance to, uh, to rate it. And join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.